Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Good morning, Vietnam! I drink your milkshake. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Hey, Film Files, welcome back to the program. We're so happy you're here. We're so happy to be here. Summer has sprung in Chicago. Sunshine is shining its bright face upon our city. The swimming pools are open for the season. And we thought, what better way to celebrate a sunshiny day than to talk about one of the grittiest and grossest and rain-soaked films in history. Today we're talking about uh, one of my favorite movies from one of my favorite directors. Probably uh, my favorite director of, I guess I would say, our generation. So I brought in one of our regular podcasters, producer, director, Corey Gilbert's with us. Corey, welcome. Thank you, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Especially when we're going to talk about a David Fincher film. Yeah. So we, we have talked about Fight Club in the past, which is fine and dandy, but there's something about Seven... And I mean, we could have blabbed on and on about Seven without having to rewatch the movie, but I just did because it was a great excuse to watch it. Mm-hmm. And it was on, I think, Netflix. Yeah, it, it was just came out on Netflix like recently. Yeah, last week it was on HBO Max, and then they moved it to Netflix this week. It was great. It was funny because you asked me to do it, and then literally like the next day, I saw it on the recently added, even though I have a couple of copies of the Blu-ray, right? So I'm like, well, that's easy. That means I should rewatch it before I do the podcast. And so I rewatched it on Monday. Yeah. You know, even when I I have to pay to to rent a movie, it's like $5.99. It's not a big deal. But there's just a nice, uh, satisfying feeling when it's streaming on one of your too many streaming services. So yeah, so we're talking about uh, this movie and I've seen it maybe 10 times. In my lifetime, it was one of those movies that I saw when I was way too young to have seen it. And Fincher's one of those directors who, aside from Denny Villeneuve, I don't think Fincher or him have ever made a bad movie in my book. And it's, I'm hard-pressed to think of another director that, you know, of course it's subjective, but I can't think of, of anybody else who had such an incredible run of films. And of course, there's movies and there's films. We talk about Weekend at Bernie's, that's a movie. Seven is a film and, and ought to be treated as such. Yeah, I agree with all that. Yeah, David Fincher, he, he seems to have the magic touch where every project that he does, even when it comes down to, I think he directed a, like he def, he directed the pilot episode of the first season of House of Cards, and obviously he's a, got a producer fingerprint on that, but he directed a couple of the episodes, and you know that is a masterpiece of a project. Of, as a TV series, and then Mindhunter, he, you know, he's behind all of that in Mindhunter, and that is a fantastically produced and written and acted and directed TV series. And then most of his movies, I don't think there's really a bad one. I'll say that I didn't totally enjoy Mank, but it's still just very well shot and very well directed, and all the camera shots are so well designed and and um just add to the storytelling i just wasn't i guess into just the story itself of this true story of of you know the writer that wrote for orson welles but i think that it's still 
an excellent film. It just personally, I kind of got a little bored, but I still think that it's probably very well respected in the industry. So I would agree with everything you said. Man came out at a time where I was kind of tired of these Hollywood movies written about Hollywood. But anyway, so his first, I guess, industry credit is on Star Wars Episode Five, or I'm sorry, Episode Six. Mm-hmm. He was assistant camera, and then he was a matte artist for ILM, and he did all the matte paintings for Temple of Doom, and then he did 55 or so music videos from just like everyone from Loverboy to um, I mean, I, you, you I can name a, a few. Oh yeah, Aerosmith. Yeah, he did Janie's Got a Gun, which yep. is a fantastic video. Eddie uh, Money. He did. Um, he did a couple of Madonna's best videos. Yeah, that's um, right. So, yeah, I mean, his start as a filmmaker and uh, and technically as a director was music videos. And it's interesting because growing up, I, I grew up in the 80s, and so I was an MTV kid, you know, like, you know, I was 10 years old when MTV first came out. And so all through the 80s, I grew up watching MTV. And I had all these, like, favorite videos as a kid, and... Then I found out 25 years later, I looked them all up and like most of them were directed by David Fincher, which is probably not an accident. Like literally like Vogue is one of my favorite. I just loved the video, the look of it and the camera shots. I'm like, this is a cool, you know, this is a cool ass video. And, you know, 20 years later, come to find out it was directed by David Fincher, you know. And then Janie's Got a Gun video was always one of my favorite videos, come to find out. Well, it was directed by David Fincher. Yeah, he just, he has a way of hijacking your eyes. Yeah, he really does. So yeah, so then his first feature was Alien 3, which I stand behind. We've done that on the podcast. You know, it's not my favorite in the series, um, and that is one of my favorite IPs in film, and I like each one for a very different reason. But uh, yeah, so he did Alien 3. That was his first feature and just had like a nightmare of a time. Um, he was fired three different times on the, on the set, Um he had like no creative control. He just got walked all over because it was his first feature. And still to this day, he insists that he did not direct that movie. And so he swore off making films. He said, I'm done. I had an awful time. I'm going back to music videos. And then his very next follow-up movie two years later was Seven, which is just like unreal. And so his director of photography on this was Darius Kandi. No, I think it's pronounced Kanji. Kanji, Yeah who is uh, a French DP who had a pretty impressive resume before Seven. He did City of Lost Children, and he did Delicatessen. And anyway, I feel like just the role of being David Fincher's cinematographer, I can't imagine the skill set that you would need going into that because I've heard that he's kind of a, a visual tyrant as far as what he's willing to do. You know, not in a way that, Stanley Kubrick was like you hear these horror stories of The Shining that's like a totally toxic environment and him like verbally and emotionally abusing these actors to get the performance that he wants. David Fincher's a different kind of tyrant where like he's just completely uncompromising and the fact that he was able to make this movie like two years after swearing off movies and having the worst experience is just such a a credit to his name, I feel like. And his style hasn't really changed that much. I mean, he's one of the few directors who you only need a couple of minutes to identify these, like, watermarks that David Fincher uses. I mean, uses. a couple of frames. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I remember going to see, I don't even remember what movie it was, but one of the trailers was his American version of the girl with the dragon tattoo. And I remember it was like the fourth or fifth trailer, you know, in the string of trailers for whatever movie it was I was waiting I was waiting to see. And I remember it just like opened up and the and like literally in a second into I'm like, this has gotta be David Fincher. Yeah. I knew in a I knew literally in a second, no hyperbole. Yeah. I knew it was a David Fincher movie. You know, mostly I think he's got there's a look that he has. His films all have that sort of like greenish brownish hue to it and you know that helps and then you know it was the frame you know it was the framing i'm just like this is david fincher the framing and then the color cue this is like this is david fincher Uh, and i think it was like the shot of like where it's like the pov of the car going down the lane of trees towards the big house that you know that christopher Plummer lives in and i'm just like this is david fincher you know and sure enough two minutes into the film you know you're just like you know that it's it's the David Fincher version Dragon yeah. to do. But yeah, he you know, his films have a, a look and you can just tell right away that they're his films. Yeah, something about his shots and composition. So I started just jotting some things down when I watched this the other day. I think it's funny the last time you were here was for another movie that came out in nineteen ninety five when we did Heat. So there's a lot of foreshadowing in, in Seven that I never picked up on. I mean some that you do, but some that you don't. So, like, the first murder where Mills and Somerset meet is not John Doe. That's the crime of passion. And then when they have the first murder and Somerset has his famous speech when he's like, you can expect five more, and he names all the seven sins, and then he looks at Brad Pitt and he says, and envy. Mm. So that's kind of fun. Right. Uh, you know, the, the movie takes place over the course of seven days. Um, the scene in the library, he looks at a couple books with some severed heads. And there's a painting of an upside down man with no head. The first shot, which of- is the foreshadowing of the upside down painting in the lawyer's office, right? Yes, yeah, and the and the decapitation. Sure. Well, you're right. Decapitation's kind of like efficient foreshadowing because, of course, the guy's going to do murders that emulate those books. I guess, yeah. right? But the upside down painting is the upside down painting that find in the lawyer's office. That behind it is the fingerprints. Yeah. So I just I love. Brad Pitt's character, he had, he, he had some clout when this movie came out. He championed for an ending that Fincher was not able to get, and we can talk about that in a second, but the way that they establish Mills' character, and th- this, was not, this wasn't written by David Fincher. The, the script, which is a, an original source material, which is great, which is just something that you don't see anymore. Whenever we watch a movie and it's an original story, there's so many things that I'm willing to forgive and look past for the sake of something sincere. But it was directed by, or I'm sorry, it was written by this guy named Andrew Kevin Walker. He's only done like four things. He did this, 8mm, which is kind of a similar vibe. And he wrote Sleepy Hollow, which is weird. Um, the Tim Burton movie? The yeah. Tim Burton version? Yeah, he, he wrote the screenplay but for that. Sleepy Hollow's an old story. Oh, right, right, right yeah. yeah. So that wasn't, that wasn't an original thing but the way that they establish david mills's character like before you even meet somerset you know he pulls out this coat hanger that has all of these ties that are pre-tied and i guess they let brad pitt pick out his own ties because they wanted his character to have bad taste well also it's that you know he like probably doesn't really know how to tie ties like his character was so like one of those guys yeah and so all his ties stay tied 
I was one of those guys. Yeah, I and, was too. And so when I like the first time I ever saw that movie, I totally picked up on that because I'm like, I was one of those guys. I'm like, oh yeah, he doesn't really know how to tie ties. So once they get tied, you keep them tied, and then you just like re put them over your head yeah. and, and just tighten them back up. Right? Yeah, it's one of those things that like if you so. can personally connect with it, you, I mean, obviously you understand reasoning to have that serve the story. But even if you've never heard of that concept before you can kind of like pick up why somebody would mm-hmm. you know like there's basketballs on one of them you know yeah and well the, he, the thing is is you know that his character was you know the idea of he was he was a, just a grown kid still right and he was wrath not envy oh right john doe was envy yeah um so but i i think he maybe morgan freeman looked over at him and said like envy and wrath is the last two or something like yeah. that but like i mean envy obviously yeah. it applied um, to his but yeah character. the idea that brad pitt was just this like immature adult right like this adult that wasn't that just was having a hard time he was growing old but having a hard time growing up yeah. right um it was the idea um and then you know hence wrath is you know it's like a realistic deadly sin for someone like that right his temper and things like that. I want to point out two other uh, foreshadows. Yeah. Uh, or maybe one symbolism. I don't know. So Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow just moved to the city. And so they have their whole apartment is in boxes the whole time, which is where her head is. Yeah. Up. Oh, oh, that's Is that a spoiler alert? We're allowed to do spoiler alert. Yeah. I mean, it so came out 21 they, years and ago. And they just keep showing, you know, they just keep, you know, cutting whenever they're in the apartment, there's always some reason to go into a box. Because they're still unpacking. Even Gwyneth Paltrow says it to Morgan Freeman. She's like, oh, excuse me, we're still kind of getting out of our boxes. She even says the word boxes, right? Yeah. And there's another awesome foreshadowing is uh, when Morgan Freeman comes over for dinner and it's, they're all like just, they're finished dinner and they're just talking and the whole time, and Gwyneth Paltrow is kind of picking his brain and kind of trying to get to know him. The whole time he's rapping a napkin around his hand and then he ends up with it wrapped around his hand and he does this yeah and that's symbol that's foreshadowing to brad pitt ends up in the cast oh interesting which was an actual onset injury that they wrote into the story which was fun well he, that's that wasn't that was definitely intentional there like yeah he is wrapped it and then it lo- totally is a bandage yeah it's the napkin but it l- ends up totally looking like a bandage and he even like featured it where he like after he was done like kind of rapping yeah, it as yeah. he was like talking, he's brandishing it. Almost. Yeah, he almost, he like brandished it, you yeah. know, like not in, not like overtly, but he did. And then it it totally evokes like the bandage that Brad Pitt had to get on his hand after John Doe, you know, broke his hand. Yeah, yeah. Even though I've seen this movie probably 10, 15 times, I always feel like. It took place in New York. You know, it's kind of like Gotham, you know, in the Batman movies. It's like Gotham is New York or, or New York is Gotham, whatever, right? But it symbolizes the, the quintessential American city with its typical crime rate and all these things, right? But they do a good job of keeping it generic and not doing anything to kind of give it away. For the first couple of years when I was watching, I'm like, is this supposed to be L.A.? Like, what is this? But it was not. It was, it was too urban to be L.A., because LA is not as condensed like that. And so I'm like, well, this has to be New York or supposed to kind of evoke New York. But they do a good job of things. Like at the end when they're driving John Doe out to the middle of nowhere, they pass, they get on the expressway mm-hmm. and then the, the sign just says city limit yeah. and the population. Yeah. But it just literally says city limit. Yeah. You know? And and like that's, that's like really cool sort of overt 
like intentional genericizing, I guess, for yeah. lack of a better word. Yeah, and then they leave the city limits at the, at the end, and they go out, and they're in the like power grids, and that's not that's not outside New York. That's no, because there's mountains, there's mountains and stuff back there. Yeah, yeah. And it was almost like shot, it was almost like Arizona or something. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's one shot where they show exit signs, and those exit signs are actual California exit signs. Mm-hmm. So, but then there's a scene where right after Somerset opens the box and he says, California, stay away from here. California was John C. McGinley's character's name. Mm-hmm. So that's a little confusing. So if it wasn't for that exit sign that showed those exits, there literally would be no proof that it took place in, in Los Angeles, which it, it was. It was filmed there and mm-hmm. took place there. And it was like, mm-hmm. I don't know why he clued us in at the very end that it actually was Los Angeles, but... Um, well, but Los Angeles doesn't have an L train, right? And so there was obviously an L- elevated train yeah, there because their, ho- their apartment shook. So I think it was shot in LA uh, for obvious reasons, I think. But I think they, I think that they probably were more making it feel like New York City than LA. Yeah. And then I think it's just suspended belief once they're out in the you know middle of nowhere by the high tension towers and there's mountains in the background or whatever, but... I'm okay with it. Like to me, like I'm just okay with the suspended belief because to me, the city was just like a generic city. It wasn't, it was like whatever city you wanted it to be. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question. I have my own opinion, but I'm curious how you would translate this. But in an early conversation with Fincher and Kanji, the cinematographer, Fincher said that he wanted to make a black and white movie in color. And I want to know, because it's, it's very film noir-ish. And it follows a lot of film noirish beats, but what? How, how would you translate that? Uh, you know, I've always felt that his movies are, you know, almost feel black and white because they're just so brown and dark green and sort of always just kind of like dirty. And everything, you know, all of the sets are always like degraded. You know, the walls are always like chipped paint and and all those things. And and they're just it just gives you this feel of film noir which you associate with black and white. But I think it's even more interesting than just regular black and white, right? It's definitely desaturated. And most of his films, you know, like, as I said before, in my opinion, all of his films have that look. That's what I love about him, right? Like, you see if he's got a style, you know? He has a definite style. And I think most filmmakers can't really say that, except I think um, you mentioned him earlier. The one other person that I feel like is, like, kind of like coming out of the school of David Fincher is is Denny Villeneuve. 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 Like, I watch his films and I'm like, I get the same feel, right? You know, they're patient. They're, like, intense, right? There's always this intense feeling and, and there's always, like, tension, which most good stories should have that. But uh, back to that um, statement, yeah, I think that it's fair to say that that film is a and that his films just like his his natural style is um well well described by whoever it was that said that um like almost black and white films in color um i think that's i think that's an excellent way of describing david fincher's visual style yeah not just seven but it's like All you know it follows the beats of like a police procedural or like a a, a, a 50s film noir but there's so many modern storytelling devices that it uses to prevent it from getting boring or, you know, I know Brad Pitt said that 
uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, who he was dating at the time, he said that she's the only sunshine in the whole movie. And I love the dinner scene so much from when he Somerset hangs up the phone and is just quiet. They're in the police office and uh, Mills, his wife, wants to talk to him and he talks and hangs up the phone mm-hmm. and then it's just totally silent. And Mills is like, what was that about? And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm to have dinner at your house tonight. And Mills is like, what's that? And so they go over and just their little subtleties and nuances, like they're sitting at the dinner table. They, uh, Tracy and Mills have just moved to the big city and Somerset says, well, how are you liking it? And they're kind of quiet and he looks at her and Brad Pitt holds her hand and he just says something real subtle like, well, you take some time to adjust and you know that like, oh, she hates it. Mm-hmm. And like just the way that he looked at her and the way that he held her hand because you know saying it takes some time to adjust it could mean that he didn't like it it implies that one of you guys is not super happy here but yeah just the way that she reacts and the way that he touches her it just lets you know that like okay she's the one that's not happy here well i think there's there's so many character developments in that brief exchange for me because that show me you know that brad pitt's character is probably he's totally codependent on his wife they do a very good job of showing that like he just like the way he talks under his breath when she calls him and all that stuff um but the exchange where morgan freeman asked how do you like it here the question was he asked tracy and then brad pitt grabbed her hand and answered for her good point and that is you know that's a very very intentional thing through the direction and probably the writer even too there's probably something maybe even in the writing about that the writer probably mentioned to make sure that that was, you know, comes off the page correctly because yeah, like right then and there, you know, that she never wanted to come. And that's why he, he answered for her because he already knew what the answer was and he didn't want his new partner to know that Mm -hmm. because he's too protective. So there's a ton of storytelling and character development in just that one moment. Yeah. Those two lines of dialogue. Yeah. Their chemistry is fantastic. Um, Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow. I love when they're looking over the crime scene photos and Mills asks Somerset if he wants a beer. And he said, no, I'll take some wine. And he brings him back like a tumbler full of wine, which is like well, or such it was like a just 21 like a regular, year old. It was just like a regular glass. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but then, it was like and then he, full, and then, full to the brim Right, and then wine. eventually Morgan Freeman like goes to drink and he like looks at it and he like... He like looks at it and is like, you know, he has in in his eyes are like he was like, what the fuck is this? He gave me wine in, a, yeah. in like a regular kitchen glass. Yeah, and yeah. it's like the most subtle of, you know, they could have ruined the impact of that if when he handed it to him, he looked at it right away, but he didn't. He just put it down because he was still looking at his crime scene photos, and then the train passes through, which causes their apartment to vibrate. So he picks up the glass to not spill any. Mm-hmm. So like just the way that just, they wrote it into the story. Just excellent writing. It's that's just excellent writing. Yeah. yeah. Because it could have easily done where, you know, he just like looks at it right away and reacts, but it wouldn't have been nearly as impactful. Yeah. You know, and then it would have just been like a cheap jab at a little bit of humor in a dark movie. Yeah, yeah. Instead of like just character development. Because putting the wine in that type of a glass is the same thing as not tying as keeping your ties tied 100 percent. yeah it's like a grown child you know then he's rolling around on the floor with his dogs yes and, stuff. and the yeah. newspaper yeah. Yeah. yeah there's like you know even though mills is a very charismatic very very likable character i mean they both are 
which is great because this movie needs some levity because this movie left me feeling with this the same kind of vibes as Silence of the Lambs, not because necessarily of the content, but just like the overall like emotional toll that this movie takes you on. You know, like I love talking about this movie because it's one of my favorite, but it's not a really fun movie to watch. There's some parts, I mean, it's like painful to get through at some points. I mean, this movie is almost 21 years old and the sloth scene still gets mm. me. I, the I lust to... scene still gets mm. me. That guy Leland Orsar, who plays the guy who wore the knife dildo, like his performance is just like bone chilling. Mm, he's the perfect guy for that because he already naturally has like that shaky yeah. voice thing. And yeah. every time I yeah. see him in anything else, I'm always like, I fucked her. I fucked her yeah. every time I see yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't fast forward through the sloth scene this time because I hadn't watched it in a couple of years and I wanted to watch it uninterrupted for your podcast, Jimmy. But yeah, I always fast forward through that part. I can't even deal with it. It's just like, I can't even deal with it. That There are many scenes, like in Saving Private Ryan, I always have to fast forward through the part where the dude's rolling around with the German guy and then the guy finally pushes the knife through his heart. Oh, yeah, yeah, Like, yeah. I can't even watch that scene. Yeah. It's just too real. And again, it's to it's David Fincher's too real credit. and too it's too real and too and too understandable. Like I just get it. Like I just feel like that just makes sense. Right? Yeah. Like some movies are like so out there, like that, like you just like don't like the violence and stuff doesn't bother you maybe because it's so sort of like unattainable. Whereas that moment in that movie, I just can't like, I pretty much watch saving private Ryan up till that part. And then I just don't watch the rest because the rest <laughs> is just everybody dying at that yeah, point yeah. anyway. And I just can't even watch that scene, that moment. It's so it's amazing filmmaking, but it's yeah. just too hard to watch. Cause it's too real. And the sloth scene in seven is just, it's just so fascinatingly creepy. Yeah. And the concept of what it was and what the, killer did was so fantastic effort that, I, that he went and, to yeah and the, that they showed up to his house a year to the day sure, sure yeah and just the idea of like is that possible to do that to a person you know like mm -hmm. to do what he did to that person is that like possible and if so i don't even want to know yeah they don't spend a lot of time going through the science of it which i don't really need to i mean just off the cuff, I feel like there's it little, probably you, you, is possible. You I mean, get they little, gave him you get little, you get little bits and pieces. Yeah, like the doctor talked about the antibiotics and and then the photos and you know and then the idea of you know the IVs and all that stuff. And it's like, I mean, man, if that's really like possible, you know, I don't want to know. Yeah, that's um, I'm sure to the writer's credit, but like all of these little nuances and foreshadowings and subtleties. That's like, that's Fincher all over. So he's got like his big movies like this, Panic Room, Fight Club, Gone Girl, you know, Dragon Tattoo. I love Social Network, but I love The Game. The Game is one of my favorites. That was the one that he did right after this. And that's another movie. If you go back and watch, there's just all these little fun hints and Easter eggs for you to pick up. And when you pick up on these things, you know, like just to go back to the pint of wine real quick. If they would have made it, like, beat you over the head with it and brought some humor into it, I feel like you don't you don't feel like you, you've earned it as much as a viewer than when you watch it and you notice maybe on, like, the second viewing, you're like, oh, I didn't notice that he looked at the wine glass like that. Like, it brings, it brings new layers to the story, but 
you've also kind of like earned a little bonus point as mm-hmm. the viewer, mm-hmm. you know. Definitely. And he, he does that all through the movie. Sure. And just a great performance, you know, by all by Morgan Freeman and all the actors. Yeah. So I do think it's weird. So that scene at the very end, they end up going over to the greed victim's wife to interrogate her in the middle of the night after dinner. And Somerset lets Mills lead this like very difficult investigation, which I think is nice. But then Tracy wakes up face down on the bed, fully clothed, like in the middle of the night to see her husband gone. And it just seems like a weird thing, you know, like, is she coping by drinking? They didn't really show her drinking that much, but it was just a, a strange kind of character choice to have her like wake up face first on the on a bed fully clothed, you know, like I don't know. These his movies cause me to like hyper analyze everything that I don't like understand right off the cuff. And there might not be anything to understand. I just I never noticed that before. I mean I, I just interpret it interpret it her as, you know, more aspects of her new life of just feeling alone in this new place that she doesn't want to be and then knowing that her husband is there to immerse himself in this career and she's you know alone i think while we're on the topic of her character i think that you know for better or for worse right you know i think that it could be critiqued that her character was was pretty thankless you know it was a pretty thankless character and you know, beyond being a set piece, you know, to set up the final moment for us to vicariously, you know, place ourselves in Brad Pitt's character. It's a role that nowadays is probably tough to like include in a film if you're not gonna if you're not gonna give it more screen time and give it its own story arc because she had no story arc except to sit around and wait for her husband and then be killed in the end. Yeah. And so it's a pretty thankless role. And after watching it again, and I haven't watched it in maybe three or four years, that really stuck out, you know? Maybe it's a sign of the times or whatever, but for better or for worse, right? The point of the movie wasn't that character, right? That movie was 95, and it was still a time where it was pretty easy to kind of avoid the female roles, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But again, you know, for the movie, the story's a great story, and her role, you know, serves the purpose it needs to serve but it could be argued that it was like a fairly thankless role and was basically a set piece for brad pitt's arc yeah yeah i agree with that and and she had nothing she had no struggle except the struggle that she never got to resolve you know like she was like oh did she ever go get a like a nice teaching job you know like she Mm -hmm. wanted to and all these things and she never like her character never spanned out at all yeah. Or panned out at all, except yeah. to end with her head to end up in a box for Brad Pitt to be devastated by. Yeah, you know what I mean. And and like there was no, there was no payoff for her. Yeah, yeah. So like he was a pretty Brad Pitt's character was very flawed in that he was you know impatient. He was impulsive. He's stubborn. He you know there's that really obvious example when he gets the cliff notes. Um, to the books that Morgan Freeman recommends him reading, which is like one of the few really obvious humor jabs, which works. But I feel like his behavior towards Tracy and like his interaction with Tracy helps to show some 
humanity and compassion where we don't often see it aside from when he's on the job. Cause we only see him when he's on the job and, um, Morgan Freeman, he doesn't have a home life except playing darts with a stiletto, which is badass. But, um, it kind of helps to establish his character a little more. Tracy helps to establish his character a little more, which is exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But I do like that she was pregnant because even if she hadn't have been pregnant, the ending is still devastating. And the fact that she was pregnant and they have that diner scene with her and Morgan Freeman, I feel like is really telling because that whole interaction like seems kind of inappropriate that you would call your husband's you know partner that you've only just met once but she had nobody else she had nobody to talk to and i know that's that was the point she knows it's inappropriate she knows she shouldn't be doing it but she does and she's like crying and like pouring her soul out to this guy so i think that diner scene does help develop her a little bit more Mm -hmm. yeah it does there wasn't zero development but there certainly wasn't very much and you know, I understand that, you know, runtime matters and maybe there was more in the script for her character that just didn't have time and maybe even produced and filmed, who knows, that just didn't have time for a cut. And I know it was stricter, you know, back then, like it was back then theaters were the one spot and it was harder to do longer movies back then. Not impossible, but definitely harder and certainly maybe harder for a guy that's doing his second feature, you know. And so who knows? You know, maybe the writer had way more for her. Probably wouldn't be very surprised if, if the writer didn't have way more for her character. It just didn't end up in the in the film that we watch, that we yeah. see. And again, I don't think that's necessarily... I'm not really placing value on it, really, that it's good or bad for the actual film itself, because I think the film is exactly needed. You know, what I think the storytellers and the filmmakers intended it to be. But it certainly could be argued that her role was pretty thankless. Yeah, generally I agree. Um, so yeah, so some of these alternate endings were really interesting because uh, I guess the one the, the ending that ended up in the movie, the studio hated because it was just so fucking dark. So Morgan Freeman wanted to have Somerset's character shoot John Doe with the reasoning that. You know, he's going to jail, so at least if Somerset kills him, he's retired. He's on the last leg of his life. You know, Mills has his whole life ahead of him. It's where he would, his character would sacrifice himself for Mills because he knows that he's saving Mills from a life in prison. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that one didn't stick. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, one of the other rewritten endings um, involved John Doe kidnapping Mills. Somerset discovers that John Doe was raised by an abusive priest in a church orphanage. He finally traces Doe to a decrepit church decorated with artwork depicting the seven deadly sins where Doe is intent on making Somerset murder him out of vengeance. As Somerset arrives, Doe has cut a cross in Mills' chest and suspended him above an altar and shoots him. Mills finally dies in Somerset's arm as the church is set on fire. Doe and Somerset subsequently engage in a shootout with Somerset wounding Doe and letting him die in the flames. The script ends with Mills's funeral. That sucks. Yeah, that'd be terrible. That <laughs> sounds like twenty. That sounds like twenty-eight more minutes of film that I just don't want to sit through. Yeah, and it's it sounds like the climax of like twenty-eight other movies that I've seen. And it's just do that. that just sounds like a half an hour's worth of film that I don't need to watch. And then there was another and, one. And just shootouts and stuff. It's just no, because that this film was never gonna be 
that. It was never going to be a big shootout. That's not the point of this film, right? Yeah. The point of this film is very simple. You know, in the end, it's like such a detailed story, but it's a simple story. It's a guy that is fed up with the world and and wants to preach, and his way of preaching is to uh, you know is to uh, evoke the seven deadly sins by showing the world seven people that evoke the seven deadly sins through murder. Uh, it's a pretty simple story. And he masterminds it and masterminds it to, you know, be one of the seven deadly sins himself. And I think you don't need a big standoff or a big Western standoff at the OK Corral to do that. You just need the three key characters out in the middle of nowhere hashing it out, you yeah. know, through dialogue. Not a bunch of gunfights and shooting and stuff. That just seems kind of lame to me. Yeah. Okay, here's ending number two. It's revealed that John Doe did not murder Mills' wife, substituting a lookalike. Mills then has no justification for killing John Doe and will spend the rest of his life in jail. Somerset decides not to retire and instead gives his country house to Mills' wife and her unborn baby. I like that one a little bit more. I mean, it's just hokey, though. Just hokey. I don't know. I mean, I think it ended perfectly the way they did it. You know, less is more. Yeah. And... Like, John Doe would never, he would never want to dupe anybody. His character was dead set on and dedicated to preaching the truth to people, not yeah. trying to not trying to confuse or trick them, right? Like, yeah. he was not about trickery. So that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have made sense for his character that he, that he killed a lookalike to, like, trick David into shooting him. Yeah, I think that's even more depressing. And it wouldn't even, yeah, and it wouldn't be as... Well, or just not as powerful. It's not as powerful, but like there's something satisfying about Brad Pitt avenging his wife's death, even if it means well, him going to jail. Well, so. and he got what he deserved. I mean, in yeah. the end, I mean, you know, you don't you don't align yourself with a mass murderer. But in the end, he that was the path he chose, and he ended up on a path that he walked down. You know, no one forced it down. I mean, he had you know Morgan Freeman's character was the opposite of all the seven deadly sins. He was quiet. He was patient. He listened before he talked. You know, he, he had all the opposites of the seven deadly sins. Brad Pitt's character, you know, he busted open the door when he shouldn't have mm-hmm. and he and then they had to go and then they had to go and lie to make up for that, right? And you know, even more he put Morgan Freeman's character, a guy who was virtuous, put a virtuous guy in a lie that he didn't want to be in because he had to decide, oh, do I want to be in Brad Pitt's lie now because he broke down the door or do I want to just let John Doe off, get off? And he had to choose. Mm-hmm. So Brad Pitt, I don't want to say he deserved it, but he certainly you know, made the bed that he ended up in. Yeah. It was just, I don't know about punishment. It was karma. I mean, I don't know, or whatever you call it, but it, yeah. was, it was, you get out of something what you put into it. And Brad Pitt put anger and hate and wrath and, and impatience and all of these ugly things into all of this. Right. And he judged, you know, John Doe and he belittled him, you know, and yeah, the guy was a mass murderer, but you still don't have the right to like make yourself feel superior to the rest of the world. And I mean, that's the house that he built. Yeah, like <laughs> that's the that's the box that he <laughs> that he built. That you know he assembled. What I mean? That he assembled, right? Yeah. And so you don't want that to happen to someone, but he certainly, or say he deserved it, but he certainly, yeah, the cause of his own problem. 
So uh, the last thing on the endings here, the ending of the screenplay with the head in the box was originally part of an early draft that New Line had rejected, instead opting for an ending that involved more traditional elements of a detective thriller film with more action-oriented elements. That was the church scene earlier. But when New Line sent David Fincher the screenplay to review for the project, they accidentally sent him the original screenplay with the head in the box ending. When New Line realized that they fucked up, they sent and they sent Fincher the wrong draft. New Line president of production Michael DeLuca met with Fincher and noted that there was internal pressure to retain the revised version. Blah blah blah. They said they were going to go back to that scene after reading the revised ending. Brad Pitt agreed only to do the film if the head stays in the box. So David Fincher didn't have the clout to keep his ending, but Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman like championed for him to have the ending that he wanted, which is like just a really beautiful thing. That's fantastic. Because Brad Pitt was established enough that he was able to do that. I mean, he didn't have a huge resume, but he was just coming off of Legends of the Fall, and obviously just everything that he brought to the table was like the beginning of something very, very big, mm-hmm. and yeah. just a string of, of yeah. hits. And, and Morgan Friedman had clout, you know. But I think, you know, that's the sign of, th- that's three guys that that all have great natural instincts and insight into what into good storytelling and what is going to be unique and powerful and correct i guess you know i don't want to say correct but like cuz it's subjective but unique and powerful and clean and true to the, all the all the final three characters characters in that final scene as opposed to some big long drawn out you know action film it yeah. wasn't an action film right it was it was a it was a it was a study in 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 the in the negative space of detective work, all the stuff that just is boring. And, you know, there's the scene where they have to sleep, just sit there on the couch for like all night and just waiting for this one thing with this match of this, of the fingerprint, you know, and, you know, it was a study in all the boring aspects of detective work. But for some people, maybe the really interesting stuff, you know, the science behind it and all like Morgan Freeman and said, like, you know, this is the job, you know, Brad Pitt's like, geez, we're just sitting here. He said, this is the job. Mm-hmm. Right, and if you want to see an action movie, you know, go watch a Michael Bay movie. You know? Yeah, I, I love the decision to. This movie always gets labeled as a horror movie, which is fine. I'm not going to argue that, but it's a really interesting technique to only show the aftermath of these acts, and you know, the only murder that we see on screen is Brad Pitt killing John Doe, and so if they would have showed these murders. Obviously, they would have had to like really tone him down, but it would have been a very different movie. And the only scene of action is the street chase, which is an amazing. I think it's the only time he goes handheld in the whole movie is during that yeah, during street chase, chase. Yep. and it's so frenetic and it's it just is. it's totally chaotic. And then it even slows down at the end of it, though. That yeah. last part in the alley with the dump truck is yeah. like so slow, true, and patient. It's yeah, beautiful. and and it's not. I mean, movies. At least movies in, you know, 1995 was like a, a crazy year for movies. Uh, what did I write down? Usual Suspects, Batman Forever, Casino, Desperado, Braveheart, Apollo 13, Leaving Las Vegas, Crimson Tide, another great Tony Scott movie, mm-hmm. uh, Get Shorty. Like, this is a very patient... Well, that was a good year. Wasn't Fargo 1995? I think so, I yeah. I think it was. Yeah. 95 and 99 were great. It was a good year. But yeah, two conversations that I always get really tired of hearing 
One of them is something like there's nothing original in Hollywood ever anymore. Everything is remakes and sequels and, and reboots and superhero movies. And I mean, there's, there's some, there's some truth to that, obviously, but I just have to dig a little bit harder to find original things. I mean, we've seen a lot of great movies this year that are like original ideas. Um, and this is, this is one of those, you know, seven obviously is an original idea, but the other one is there's too much special effects or there's too much CG in movies. That shit drives me nuts because obviously the only CG that you notice is bad CG. And 795, not a lot of CG going on. When I'm thinking about CG in 90s, I'm, I, always, I always think, was it before Titanic or was it before The Matrix? Because those were two like juggernauts that mm-hmm. like changed the way that movies were made. Mm-hmm. So not a lot of CG in this, but David Fincher is like amazing with his visual effects work. And I watched this really cool uh, BTS on Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. And at the end, when the character is driving to the explosion without her helmet. So obviously they used, you know, she did not do her own stunts. They used a professional stunt driver. So they could have just put the actress on the bike. She puts a helmet on and drives to the explosion because they're not using that actress because she can't do those stunts, but it doesn't, it's not true to that character. Like she was reckless. She would never wear a helmet. So then it's like, okay, well, how do we do this? Do we get a lookalike? So they had a stunt driver perform the scene, the motorcycle ride, and it's a long ass scene. And then they digitally replaced shot by shot the actress's face. And of course you don't notice because you're not intended to notice. I mean, if, if, if the visual effects artist does his job, then you will never have noticed that he was there. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like if you go into like the BTS of these movies, you understand how much CG is in his movies, but it's not done as like spectacle, like with the comic, you know, like the Avengers movies. Like when right. there's a huge, when right. there's a huge fight scene, like the story gets put on pause. And it's just like mindless spectacle, which can be fun. Mm-hmm. But David Fincher is able to use visual effects to serve the story. Right. Exactly. I know I'm not telling you anything. Yeah, new. yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, he's using visual effects for entirely different reasons than the visual effects in Lord of the Rings. You know, um, like it, like um, in Black Swan, didn't they replace like Natalie Portman's head on like the ballet dancer? Yeah. Right. Yeah, we talked about that. You know, which is you know, and that's it's incredible. You can't tell at all. You just think it's Natalie Portman. Yeah. You know, sucks for that dancer. Same as like you just think it's Rudy Mara, like whipping down the street in the middle of the night. Yeah. You know, in the rain on a motorcycle with no helmet. You know. Yeah, there's a famous shot in Zodiac, and I already know that you know the shot that I'm talking about. The aerial shot following the following cab. The cab. Yeah. And it's like such a, a mathematically perfect calculated shot that. You probably figure that it's probably not real because it's just too no, it's not real. No, it's not real. You're right. It's not. It's CG, but you can't turn a cam. You can't. The camera is literally locked on the roof of the cab. You can't do that in real life. Yeah, there's just something about that's all CGI. Yeah, but there's just something about the way that he moves the camera to follow the actor to where if the actor is moving, the camera is moving. There was there was an example of that in. Gone Girl, when Ben Affleck is doing this news conference, when the actor starts moving, the camera starts moving, and he's doing this news conference, and he's super uncomfortable, 
and he adjusts, he like shrugs his shoulder a little bit. And as he shrugs his shoulder, the camera adjusts just slightly enough to maybe not notice. But if you know what you're looking for and you go back in and look at it, it's unbelievable. Sure. I mean, he, it, to me, like one of the greatest CGI shots of all time that's completely motivated and not gratuitous at all, which makes it even more beautiful, is the, is the shot in Panic Room where the camera travels through the whole house Goes through the teapot. It goes through the teapot. It goes into the keyhole and comes back out. And it's mixing in live action because it's, it's it's traveling through the house and you see like Forrest Whitaker and Jared Leto outside the windows like peering in. And then it follows them over to the key and goes into the key lock when the key goes and comes back out. And then it goes through the stairwell case and all that stuff. And, you know, what that shot does is that it it shows us the entire it almost turns the film into like a stage show if, as, as if we were watching like a, a play yeah, instead of a movie because, that it's a because then it, re, then it, it just showed you like the camera just goes, here's the whole, here's the extent of the whole story of this, of the, where the whole story in this whole movie is going to take place right here. Never leaves the house. The story never leaves the house. Yeah. Once they're in it, you know, obviously there's the opening scene where they're out on the street, but yeah, that shot's incredible. And you know, what it's doing is setting the stage for the audience, mm -hmm. right? Uh, did I miss any Fincher? I mean, his title sequences cannot be yeah, overlooked. Yeah, the title sequence, I mean, he that's does, a real that's his a real title sequences. Thing. His title sequences are groundbreaking title sequences, you know? Yeah. The, the one in Panic Room, where it's just the static letters, like, in, in perspective of the buildings. Mm -hmm. It's just fantastic, right? And that was like, you know, that's not so new now. You know, you can do that in After Effects in like five minutes. But like at the time, that was like pretty damn cool. Yeah. And then, you know, his title sequence of coming out of Ed Norton's brain, mm -hmm. you know. Going through the garbage can. And going through the, that was later on the film, but the title sequence of coming out of the person's brain. And then literally down the bridge of their nose and then down the barrel of the gun to the, to the, to the end of the gun. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. Right. And still holds up today when you watch it, you know. And then the girl with the dragon tattoo title sequence is just like, that was groundbreaking at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And not just cool and, sequences. And it but wasn't like, and, and that was when you watch it, you realize that you're seeing what it's doing is showing all of Rooney Mara's life up until the time of where the movie starts and all the violence that she'd been subjected to her whole life, which was why she was the way she was. The, like she was molested or whatever it was. And like when you watch the title sequence, it's like her being abused. Yeah. That's the that's the title sequence. Yeah, it's this cool like black oil looking thing and like all that's cool CGI. But it's her character. It's we're getting a glimpse into the abuse that her character had suffered up until the point in where we come into her life. Yeah. Entertaining. I feel like entertaining factors is second. Because the, his title sequences are like his first shot of like, okay, the storytelling It's the setup to the story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And same with Seven and seeing him, you know, cut off his He's cutting, yeah. And he's writing, he's writing in his journals. And yeah, it's the, it's the main character. You know? Which I guess all of those composition I mean, books were done by the production designer. And he, they gave him a month and a half to fill out all of those composition books. He did like 120 composition books. Which is just fantastic. Yep. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, e even Social Network is 
the title sequence, as simple as it is, it's still in line with his other ones. It's it's the main character. It's what's his name running across the campus of Harvard. Yeah, like setting the stage. It's yeah, like this whole thing takes place at Harvard, right? Yeah, and it's the main character just running from one end of it to the other, with like really awesome Trent Reznor music, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah. So seven, the intro song was closer by Nine Inch Nails. Um, well, who he re- was- massively remixed. Yeah, 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 massively remixed. And then he used Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross for most of, I mean, all of his stuff now, not Fight Club, but he did Social Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, mm-hmm. and not Mindhunter, um, and not House of Cards, but all of his films. Yeah, and not, still do. not Mank, but yeah, like he, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not I think, Mank. Like, I think, yeah, the, like the Atticus Ross, Trent Reznor duo, like that's Fincher's go-to, yeah. you know, like for all his movies. And it's yeah. a perfect, it's a perfect marriage of visionary of two of you know of like visionary people yeah that all have a very similar style you know they're both they're just both visceral so between just all of his filmography which one if you had to choose one that was your favorite picture film of david for david fincher um gee you can have 24 hours to think yeah about 24 hours i mean fight club is probably it you know because of just you know how much i can I just felt like I was hearing myself in so much of it, you know, Brad Pitt's soliloquy in the basement about, you know, people working jobs they hate to buy shit they don't need. It's like that had been my argument to people for like years. Yeah. And like, I thought I was like hearing myself. Right. And then to just have like my favorite pixie song of all time be used at the end. And it was right because it's called, where is my mind? You know, as these buildings are blowing up, you know, that, that movie was the movie uh, of my generation i mean that's i was i'm those guys age right like you know he's like what's he's like he said it he's like i'm a 30 year old boy you know like ed norton says it i was like 28 when that movie came out i Mm -hmm. totally was starting to feel the effects of like realizing i wasn't gonna be a rock star and and a movie god when i grew up even though i grew up in the 80s thinking that because we grew up in mtv and so that movie, it that's the movie. That's my favorite David Fincher movie. Is it the one I watch the most often? I don't know. Probably not. I actually watch Social Network a lot. But if I had to answer, there's no there's no other answer. It's that one. Because it's, you know, basically a movie about everybody like me in the late nineties, you know? And and, and the book and the, the book, Chuck Poly Polani. Yeah, like his books are all um, you know, sort of fateful tales of the uh, Generation X post-adolescence reality. And so books of his books, those books, that writer's always connected to me. And so when, you know, when I heard that David Fincher was going to make a movie out of that book, I'm just like, oh my God, you know, this is going to be perfect. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. I, feel and like I think the changes were, impo- were good too. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of it was right out of the book. I mean, most of the narration was right out of the book. I mean, it was just like incredible how much it was just like the book. I mean, and could be because his books are very like easy reads they're quick they're easy it's like you can go make a movie out of it and it's almost like you don't have to cut anything Mm -hmm. (laughs) unlike lord of the rings where you got to make like you know where you got to make like 90 hours of film to even like get the stories across but you know and i think that david fincher i think he probably had his mind on that book for a long time and i think he found his tyler durden when he met brad pitt you know like who else is tyler durden yeah nobody Right? Yeah. Because Brad Pitt is that guy. He's the perfect dude. Yeah. Yeah, he is. You know? Not only is he like 
uh, you know, totally good looking and all that, but he's also totally charming, totally funny, totally cool. You yeah. just want to hang out with the guy. He delivers everything with such conviction. Conviction, yeah. Yes. And charm, you know, you just like can't help it. You just like, man, I want him to, like, you just want him to be one of your buddies. Yeah. Because he's too cool for school, you know? So the answer is Fight Club. Well, mine is seven or Alien 3. Yeah. Alien. Well, I do, for the record, I love Alien 3. You know, I think it's a great movie. Yeah. I don't like how they killed off Hicks and Newt. That's my biggest gripe with that movie. It was. It was, there was nothing he could but do. But you, I you, you can't bring that. You know, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, with all that. What do you, you can't have the little girl there to have yeah, any yeah. sort of fun with that movie. Yeah. Because then you got this little girl there. You know, it's like, okay. Yeah. I, I appreciate that every alien entry is like a, in a vastly different genre. That's why I really like that series. Except that the two new ones were Covenant the, was the fourth, awful. Well, all the prequels are terrible. I don't yeah. even want to know about them because they're just bad. And mo- mostly, foundationally, for me, they're bad because they give away too much. Like, to me, the Alien movies are amazing and awesome because you get... Because where the alien, like, species originated or came from is a mystery. It's just an... It's just an of it, They're just a... They're, they're a viral species out in the space, in the universe. Like, and will they ever get to our part or not? Who and so, like, the concept of it, of it being, like, viral of this like species being viral was so awesome. Yeah. And so to like, to like say that it ended up being created by this, like Michael Fassbender character just was dumb I know. and terrible and stupid. It's, it's such no, a Ridley Scott. They're just, circle no, jerk. they're an evolution. They're an evolution in the universe of, of it's a species that evolved in the universe and it's a viral species. Leave it at that. It's yeah. way more exciting. I'd rather like the prequels ruined it all because the, what made those movies so great is the mystery of where the alien originated. Like, where, how did that type of a species ever evolve in the universe that we live in? And that's what made those movies cool. To go back and like show us all the like where they came from is dumb. Mm-hmm. That's why those movies are terrible. You know, every, all the movie, all the one, two, and three are the only ones I ever watch. I've never, I never watched the Resurrection one with the, Winona the Ryder. One was is, terrible. Is a total cult. It was terrible. Cla- it's like I hated a it. Cult well, classic. I don't. I mean, again, that's subjective. But I did not enjoy it at all. I've yeah. watched it one time my whole life, and I have it. You know, I have the. I have the box set of where it's one, two, three, and four. It's those four, the yeah. Alien anthology. But yeah, I mean, I, the first three are great. I think that they were assigned to like three of our greatest filmmakers. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. And each one of our each one of those filmmakers has their own unique style, and they were able to. Well, I guess David Fincher would argue maybe he wasn't able to, but I still saw him in that film, where like you know Ridley Scott got to be Ridley Scott. Mm-hmm. And James Cameron got utterly to be James, Ridley Scott and, and James, utterly James Cameron. And James Cameron got to be James Cameron. It, it, he turned it in over an action mm-hmm. installation of the of the of the series, perfect, and it was great. And then you know, Fincher's is very you know cerebral and dark, and it's all gritty and brown and green, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Yeah, just like all his movies, you know. And the idea of that POV cam, you know, it was the first time we saw the POV, oh, yeah, the yeah. POV of the alien like whipping through the. The tunnels of the mm-hmm. prison, like that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was unique. You know, so. Well, the only thing I have left to say uh, about uh, Seven is that I absolutely love that David Fincher is like one of those directors that tends to bring out the best performance in all the people that he works with, whether actors or 
crew, we, we kind of talked, I think I said the same thing about Michael Mann, and it's true about Michael Mann. And we didn't spend a lot of time on Kevin Spacey, and we don't really need to. He did. He was great in this. I think he does the best. He has the strongest performances when David Fincher is directing. Um, he was great in House of Cards. He was great in this. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he's great in American Beauty. You can't really. Yeah. You can't really. Uh, yeah, avoid, he's, he's avoid, great in American Beauty. Can't really Beauty. avoid that one. And Usual Suspects. Yeah, and this was right know? after Usual Suspects. Yeah. So, but they I, had to have him. His name not appear in the opening credit, so because they didn't want to give that away. No, and I think that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing that we should not um, avoid is that the credits go backwards. Yeah, yeah. We should not avoid that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One thing. Yes, I think David Fincher. His visual style is so rememberable and so powerful that we don't realize that he is also an actor's director. Like his. Every performance in every one of his movies, every character, even the side ones, are great. Yeah. All of them. Yeah, the supporting cast in Seven that we really didn't even touch on, but like John C. McGinley as the SWAT team leader and Richard Roundtree and as... Arlie Ermey. And Arlie Ermey. I mean, I mean it I've was... Seen, I mean, okay, so we all know him because, you know, he was so amazing in Full Metal Jacket, right? Because he was playing himself. Yeah. Perfect. And then you've seen him, and then he got famous because of that and ended up in a bunch of action movies, and he's always like the police chief or whatever. And most of the time, he wasn't good. But he's good in Seven. Yeah, he's got a lot he's to do. He's got a lot, and he's great. And the scene where he, like, he's sitting there with them and the phone rings, he goes, this isn't even my yeah, desk. Yeah, yeah. That was my desk. That was funny, man. Yeah. Like, that was hilarious. It was great delivery, you know? And the scene where the, the two of them are in his office after they find the first I'm murder. I'm all over it. And he's like, yeah. And he's just like, shut up, you know? He was really good in this movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Spacey's character and, and uh, yeah, I mean, all the side characters. John C. McGinley's character is great. Like, they they totally go over the top and like make him be like you know where they're like man these guys love this shit you know yeah and so John C McGinley plays just like the maniac SWAT officer that just loves breaking down doors and like, yeah. shooting people you know and he's like too he's like dangerously gung ho for his job you yeah. know but like that's how those guys super are super aggressive yeah super aggressive so I think it was worth br- that you that you brought it up you know that we shouldn't avoid you know how great performances are in his films they're always some of these some of these actors you know top performances you know of their careers like not maybe not ben the Stiller, top. i thought that maybe was the not, best thing i've ever seen ben Stiller. yeah in. i mean i love i love uh ben a- you mean ben affleck ben, oh yeah 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 that's the best ben, thing i've ever I mean, seen ben, ben affleck, affleck in, in gone, gone girl. girl it's great because He's like 15, 17 pounds overweight, you know, because he's at that age. And then like, he's kind of clumsy and like, he's not, he doesn't play like the Ben Affleck cool guy that, that, that like never makes a false move. He's like clumsy, he's vulnerable, you know, he doesn't know how, you know, he's not like, he's not in control. Like he, where he plays, he always plays these characters where he's got everything under control. Mm-hmm. And in this movie, he plays like a regular dude that like is confused and isn't sure what's going on and is getting taken advantage of, you know, mm-hmm. and that's a great role for him. And he killed it. I thought, you know, yeah. like he just nailed it. Do you think we could do like a straight 10 hour podcast and just do each Fincher film one yeah. by one? Yeah, probably. Well, I knew that I was going to need help picking apart seven. I knew that I couldn't do it on my own. Corey, thanks for stepping up. Always enjoy it, Jimmy. 
And uh, of course, you can get the rest of our podcasts on soundcloud.com slash movie show theater, iTunes, uh, podcasts, anywhere else you get podcasts, you can find us. And you can find our movie show theater Facebook page, all the social medias. Uh, leave us a message and suggest a movie for us to do. We'll never run out of movies, but we would like to talk about what you would like us to talk about. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, this is Movie Show Theater. <laughs> <laughs>